The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. Um, This morning we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 21. You can find it. There there are Bibles that are scattered underneath the chairs, and that's on page 917, or it's going to be posted behind me, hopefully. Um, But I do encourage you to follow along. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. But now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he went, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? This is the word of God. Well, since the beginning of the summer, we've been working through our series in the book of Acts. And the, the title of the series is Jesus Continued. And the reason it's called that, the reason that we're studying the book of Acts is because Jesus is, without a doubt, the most influential person in the history of the world. There's not really even a close second. 
Without a doubt, no matter what you believe about Jesus sitting or standing here this morning, there is no doubt that he is the most influential person in the history of the world. But what's fascinating about the book of Acts that we're studying and the story, if you're a Christian here, is the story of of your family. If you're a part of a church or the church at large, this is a part of your history as a member of the church, is that The fact that Jesus is today considered without a doubt the most influential person in the history of the world was in no way assured whenever he died at the age of 33 or so. Uh, That's because when Jesus died, he left behind a small group of very unimpressive followers. They were a group of people, they were peasants, maybe a total of 500 in, in, in total, who were mostly poor peasants. They were not influential in themselves. And in fact, they weren't even very faithful or committed to Jesus whenever he died, which is what makes it kind of an interesting, unusual story that isn't matched by any other story in history. Some great leaders left behind a a committed group of fanatic followers who continued doing whatever they wanted them to do after they died. But Jesus did not leave a committed group of fanatic followers. He left behind a group of wishy-washy, poor, uninfluential, unimpressive people. And yet, here in this passage that uh, was read for us this morning... We, in just a few years after Jesus lived, died, was buried, and the Christians purported to be resurrected again on the third day, just a few years later, Christianity, the followers of him, or what's called the way in this passage, has spread throughout Jerusalem and the entire region around it and is now starting to trickle and spread like gangrene across the entire Roman Empire. How in the world did that happen? The power in Christianity wasn't just uh, in the spread of numbers. It It was in the incredibly deep and profound change that Jesus' followers experienced. It wasn't just some people who timidly or tepidly kind of believed in him or uh, adhered to his teachings and spread that around. It was a group of people who had experienced a deep and profound change in their lives. And this is the great power of Christianity. Changed people. Profoundly changed people. There's some of you here in this room, I'm looking at you in your eyes, and I know your story, or at least a little bit of your story. And I know that the, your, the great story of your life is that you have been profoundly changed. That you were going in one direction. You had, uh, your life was really laid out for you in front of you. You experienced incredibly powerful addictions. You have experienced incredibly powerful, uh, terrible things that have been done to you. Some of you have done terrible things and it seemed like you were going in one direction with your life and something intervened or rather someone, capital S, intervened into your life and caused it to go into a, into a absolutely different direction than it was going before. Christianity doesn't claim, doesn't profess to reform people. 
This is what's unique about Christianity. It doesn't profess to reform people. It professes to transform people. This is a pretty big claim. Christianity doesn't claim to modify people into better versions of themselves. Christianity claims to remake people so that they can truly become themselves, the selves that they were created by God to be. And so it was that one after another after another, numbering into the dozens and hundreds and even thousands of these remade, now truly human people spread across the Roman Empire. And as they spread, that's what turned the world upside down. And the story in this passage in Acts 9-1, particularly through verse 21, but all the way through verse 35, is the story about just one of those conversions. Now, it happens to be one of the most momentous conversions in the history of the world, because behind Jesus, perhaps Saul, who later became known as Paul, he might be the most influential person in history behind Jesus. He might be the not close second behind. So it's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal in what he ended up doing after his life. It's a pretty big deal in the way that it happened. I mean, not even those of us in here who have experienced conversion, who have been born again, which is what we're talking about this morning. Uh, maybe it didn't happen for you like this. Exactly. It may not have been a blinding flash of light. It may have been. I've heard some of your stories. It's pretty incredible. But it may not have been a blinding flash of light that threw you to the, to the ground. The people around you didn't understand what was going on, but they heard some sort of voice. And you heard Jesus speak or saw Jesus appear directly to you the way Saul did. You may not have been blinded by this flash of light. You may not have had to be led by hand into the city into which you were traveling and then fasted for three days. And then a total stranger came and visited you and prayed for you, a, a man who you were actually coming to that city or one of the people to arrest and throw into prison, him and his entire family would then come to your room, call you your brother, lay his hands on you, scales, something like scales, fall from your eyes, and then you can see, and then you go and become like maybe the most important person behind Jesus in the history of the world, and certainly in the history of Christianity. Maybe it didn't happen for you exactly like that. But something like that. Christian conversion, or the new birth, is the bedrock of what Christianity is all about. It's the reason Jesus came. It's the reason he died. It's the reason that he was resurrected. Saul's conversion demonstrates what happens when someone is born again. It shows us three things this morning we're going to look at. It shows us a lot of things. We're going to stick with three things and by God's grace, I'm going to end this thing on time. It shows us that, first of all, that conversion surprises you. Conversion surprises you. Secondly, that conversion happens to you. And thirdly, that conversion changes you. Conversion surprises you. Conversion happens to you. And conversion changes you. First of all, conversion surprises you. Now, we get a a peek at Saul before we get into Acts chapter 9. And the peek that we get at him is that here's this man. He was a Pharisee, a very uh, 
a very young, but yet already beginning to get a name among other Pharisees. He was trained under the, perhaps the greatest Pharisee. It was a sect of the Jews who actually strictly, strictly followed the Jewish law together. They believed in trying to strive after holiness together. And his teacher was perhaps the most famous Pharisee at the time, Gamaliel. And Paul, or Saul, as he, he became become known as Paul, but Saul was so... Uh, such a, a strict adherent to the, what he believed the way of God to be, which is just the Old Testament laws, that whenever he heard these new group of people who were professing the name of Jesus, that he had died for our sins and that uh, he had changed the whole playing field, that Saul was got angry about that. And the first glimpse we get at Saul is that he is actually standing to hold and have the, to watch the coats of the people who stoned Stephen, the first martyr, to death. Saul watched their coats and he watched the whole thing play out in front of him. The wording that we get about Saul in Acts chapter 8 is, uh, is uh, echoed here at the beginning of Acts chapter 9 when in verse, in verse 1 it says, but Saul still breathing threats and murder. That's the third time in the book of Acts that, the, that Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, uses wording that in the original Greek points to like an, an animal, the way a wild beast would approach something. Saul is a is he is fanatical. He is a he is so angry with these people who perverted. He thinks who have perverted the law of God and declaring that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came in flesh. He's so angered by this idea that he is fanatically like a wild beast trying to go after them, ravage them, and to tear them apart. He was not on the way to Damascus, which is a about a. A long, it's a long journey from Jerusalem. I think it's 180 miles or so. A, a long journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. He was not on the way to Damascus in order to get converted. He was on the way to Damascus to lock up the Christians who were there in Damascus and to put a stop to the spread of these Jesus people that were starting to get, really get out of control. Paul thought that he was doing God's will. He thought, above all, that he was all right. We see that in the passage that we covered last week in Philippians, when Paul said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was a, of the, about keeping, to the, keeping the law. I was blameless. I was flawless. I was nailing it. I was the best of the best. I was, in my opinion, in my eyes, I was okay. I was all right. And a lot of you who've experienced conversion, you experienced that, right? You were going along in life, just happy-go-lucky. You weren't looking for Jesus. You weren't looking for God. You, weren't, you weren't, didn't have any sort of sense that anything was wrong. You're just going your own way. You think, you thought, everything is okay. Everything is hunky-dory in my life. Until Sort of events started happening that started to kind of raise the temperature in the room and you're starting to feel like maybe things aren't okay. And then all of a sudden, instantly you realize I am not okay. Some of you here in this room, you've not had that moment. And you've thought up to this moment, hey, everything's okay. If there is a God, I'm okay with him because I've done more good things than bad things. If there is a God, I'm okay because he knows my intentions. He'll judge me by my intentions. And my intentions usually is, are to do the right thing. 
if, if, if there is a God, then I'm going to be okay because I have given this much or I've raised good children or I've done all these things. Whatever it is that you think you've done, Paul says, Saul says, I, I, have, I am the Michael Jordan to your Randy Goff of basketball skills. I was way, way better than you. And yet here's Saul on the way to Damascus thinking what he thinks is doing, doing what he thinks is the right thing. And all of a sudden, something happens. Conversion doesn't come because it's expected. Conversion often comes for us unlooked for. That's because left to our own devices, we would not and we could not follow after God. The Bible says our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. The Bible says that we are dead, apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's not like Princess Bride mostly dead. It is totally dead. You have no inclination to follow after God. And if you did, you could not do it. You could not make yourself to do it. I would like, there, there, are, there are days where I would like to not like cheeseburgers. I would like to not like fried chicken. But I cannot make myself not like a cheeseburger. I can make myself not eat it, but I can't make myself not like it. And our inclination away from God is sort of the same way. Even if you could, you wouldn't. You could not. Conversion doesn't come because it's expected. It comes unlooked for. Conversion doesn't come because you are wanting it. Paul was not wanting this. He did not want to consider. In fact, one of the reasons that we think that he was so fanatical about going after the Jesus people is because it was getting under his skin. He had no thought that they were possibly right. He did not want anything to do with Jesus. He wanted everything to do with stamping out Jesus. And some of you in this room, you're in the same place. You want nothing to do with this Jesus. And that may be for a couple of reasons. One is maybe you just don't believe. Maybe you feel like you haven't seen enough proof. Some of you, that's really like, Excuse number one behind a bottom excuse that says, if I really were to let myself believe that Jesus is who he said he was and who the Bible says he is and who Christians say he was, then I know that would mean that he would have to be Lord of my life and I would have to bow my knee to him. And I really don't want any piece of that. So I'd rather keep him at an arm's length away. And put all kinds of different excuses between him and me to keep me from actually having to consider his claims that he is God, that he is Lord, that I am not, that he is holy and I am sinful and I need a savior. And my only access to him is to acknowledge that he is the Lord of all. And I was created not to fulfill myself, but I was created to follow after him and to find my fulfillment in serving him, not in serving myself. Conversion doesn't come because it's expected. It doesn't come because we're wanting it. And it doesn't become because you think it's needed. 
let's just be honest in this room. Most of us, apart from like, I know the right answer in church, most of us think we're okay left to ourselves. Because like I mentioned last week, we judge ourselves based upon our intentions and we judge other people based upon their actions or their outcome. We don't actually honestly look at ourselves and say, am I okay? Am I okay with God? Are things okay between him and me? Am I okay when I look at my life and I see, like, if I could picture my life playing out 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and I continue to follow the course that I'm following, am I going to end up okay? Am I going to end up the person that I keep on believing and thinking that I am or that I think that I'm going to be one day? Am I actually going to be that person if I continue this route? But we're fooled into thinking that we're okay, that we're all right, that everything's copacetic. And if there was a God and if there was a Satan, an enemy of God and an enemy of your soul as a person who was, as a human being who was made in the image of God, wouldn't that be the way that he would come after us? Wouldn't the way that Satan would come after us would be to lull us into thinking that everything's all right? Until the last moment we realize it's not. And it's too late. Conversion doesn't come because you think it's needed. But look at what happened to Saul. As he went on his way. (laughs) Isn't that a great picture of how some of us has happened to us? As he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly... A light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. At this moment, that suddenly moment, the light from heaven shines He falls to the ground. He hears a voice. He asks, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus. At that moment, something dawns upon Saul's heart that dawns upon every person at this point of conversion. And that is, I don't deserve anything but death. Saul, at this moment, laying on the ground, hearing the voice from heaven, Wondering who it is. And it says, I am Jesus. At that moment, Saul knows he's got me. Here's the all-powerful creator God who has stopped me on my way. He has spoken to me with a light that blinded me, thrown me to the ground. I am utterly at his mercy. And I deserve nothing, absolutely nothing but death. Saul. Who who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus took it very personally, what Saul had been doing with his life. He does the same thing with each of us, with the way that we run after our own things. 
our running after God is simply being a traitor to the almighty creator God. And it's personal between us and him. And at the moment that you realize that he is real, that he is holy and that you are not, the first realization that rolls over your mind, that rolls over your heart is I deserve nothing but death. Conversion is surprising, not just in that it's none looked for and because we're not wanting it, we don't think it's needed, but at the moment that the curtain begins to draw back, we realize it is totally undeserved. Saul had done terrible things. He'd been part of separating families, arresting them, throwing them in prison. He had He had assented to Stephen, an innocent man who was wrongfully accused, to be stoned in public. And here he was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus to continue this. He had done some terrible things. Some of you have done some terrible things. You're thinking about it right now. I've done some terrible things. And salvation from God is totally and completely undeserved. Jesus considered the things that Paul had done to be done directly to him. Can you imagine the feeling of utter helplessness and hopelessness at that moment while Saul is laying on the ground on the road, groveling in the dirt, this man who was coming in ravaging like a beast, out of Jerusalem into Damascus, he's now groveling on the dirt. Not only had he done terrible things, but he should have known better. He knew the Bible. He knew that there was a promised Messiah who was coming. And many of us know better. Some of you have grown up in church. You know the story backwards and forwards. You know Man, sinful, God, holy, Jesus and the cross and the bridge diagram. You know the whole thing. And yet it still has never really been able to arrest your heart and change you so that you experience conversion and the new birth. The beginning, the dawning of that new birth, the dawning of that conversion is the, realize, is the realization that if he were to grant you mercy, it would be totally and completely undeserved. Because we deserve, I deserve, nothing but death. Conversion surprises you. But then look at this. This is the good news. Conversion happens to you. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise. This is, that's a beautiful word at the beginning of verse 6. Suddenly is a beautiful word back in verse 3. But then another beautiful word because Saul was going on his own way and suddenly God stopped him. And then verse 6, but, oh, that's a beautiful word. But you, 
you have been persecuting me. You deserve nothing but death. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand. The man who had been ravaging Jerusalem was coming in like a wild animal to Jerusalem. Now he is being led by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Here's the beautiful news, though. Though we deserve nothing but death, though the beginning of the, of the dawning of, the, of conversion is realizing that we deserve nothing but death, it is absolutely, if we were to receive any grace, it would be absolutely and completely undeserved. Here's the good news, that conversion for you has been initiated by Jesus. He didn't leave it into your camp. He didn't leave it in your hands saying, hey, if you ever want to come after me, come after me, knowing that you had no inclination, knowing that you were dead in your trespasses of sin, knowing you had no desire for it. He didn't leave it in your hands. He initiated it. He initiated it in two ways. One, that he came to earth as a man, that he lived the perfect life that you and I could not live, that he died the death that we had coming to us. We could not have made God do that on our behalf. We couldn't do it ourselves and we couldn't make, you can't arm wrestle God into doing anything. He decided to do it. In fact, the Bible tells us he decided to do it before the world began, before Adam and Eve stood in that garden, before Eve took the fruit when she shouldn't have taken, before you committed those terrible things that you have been thinking about as you're sitting here before any of that happened it said that Jesus Christ was slain in the mind of God before the foundation of the earth he initiated the response to your needed salvation and conversion before you even needed it in time get your head around that because I can't Jesus initiated salvation for Saul and he initiated salvation for you. But not only did he do it for you in some 2,000 years ago time, not just like with Saul, did he do it some 30 years ago or so, like some 10 years or so before this? He, not only did he do it and he initiate the actions that would pay your debt and my debt for us, he initiated salvation or conversion in you and in me personally. He personally came after Saul. Saul was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus, going his own way. God could have done some different things. God could have caused an avalanche to have just rocks fall on Saul. He could have, he could have uh, set up there for there to be robbers that would be on the road that would kill Saul and rob his party. He could have set up Saul to contract a terrible disease. But what did he do? He came after him. C.S. Lewis described his conversion as saying the great angler or the great fisherman just set him up and reeled him in. He said it was like the hounds of heaven came after him. But not just the hounds of heaven, but the hound, capital H of heaven, came after Saul And if you're a believer this morning, the hound of heaven, Jesus Christ himself, came after you.
He engineered all the circumstances that need to happen in order to get you ready for that moment whenever you would be converted. He engineered all that. Some of those were not good things. Some of those were terribly painful things. But he engineered them and set them up in such a way so that just the right moment, he could open your eyes. Some of you are here this morning, and your life has been going haywire, and you're not sure quite what has been happening to you. You felt discombobulated. Things have been going on that's thrown you off, and you've been wondering what in the world is going on, and now you find yourself here this morning. The hound of heaven has been coming after you. For this moment, so that he might pull back the curtain and allow you to see him and his holiness and his beauty and you and your helplessness and your hopelessness to see that you deserve nothing else but also to see that he has initiated salvation and conversion for you and he has come after you and he is coming after you and by his love he will not let you out of his sight. The hound of heaven has you in his sight and he will not let you Conversion is initiated to us by Jesus, but it's responded to by us. We said that, see, that was Saul, right? This man who was coming in, who hated the Christians, who hated Jesus, was trying to stamp out everything with Jesus. All of a sudden, he rose and he entered the city, led by the hand, and he waited. When, we, when God begins to awaken our hearts and we see salvation initiated by him on our behalf, we respond. We cannot help but to respond. We respond gladly. We talked about it last week. If Jesus is the prize and he is the prize and you see him as that prize, what in the heck does it matter if you have to count everything else as loss? If he had to take everything from you in order for you to find him, it is worth it. It is worth it. We respond gladly. We respond humbly. See how Saul responds. He was coming in ravaging and raging. And now he comes in led by the hand into the city. Ananias comes in and meets him. This man who didn't know him. He was scared of even going to visit him. Because he knew Saul was coming in order to kill the Christians. Or lock up the Christians in Jerusalem. Saul submits himself to him. And as Ananias lays his hands upon him and prays for him. And he, the scales fall from his eyes and he sees. Conversion is initiated to us by Jesus, but we respond gladly and we respond humbly and we respond freely to him. Until Jesus opens your eyes, you may think that you're free to do whatever you want to do. But the truth is that you're bound by your own sinfulness. The Bible calls us slaves to sin. What that means is, just like I said, like, like I love fried chicken and I love cheeseburgers and I hate pot roast. 
I hate pot roast, and in no way can I make myself like it. I hate fish. I'm kind of a picky eater. Poor Megan. I hate pot roast. I hate fish, and I hate spaghetti, and I hate lasagna, and I cannot make myself like any of those things. I would like to like fish. It seems like a good thing to eat. It's healthy for you and the whole bit. I cannot make myself like that terrible flaky taste and texture. Everything about it just causes my skin to crawl. I can't make myself like those things. But when you're a believer, he frees you to make a decision for him that you could not otherwise make. You're made truly human. And you know what this means? It means that Jesus was the star of Saul's conversion and Jesus is the star of your conversion. Jesus is the star of Saul's conversion. What, what, is, what does Saul have to say about himself after all this? In fact, he tells us in some of his writings, it pleased God to open my eyes to see the light. Conversion surprises you. Conversion happens to you. And lastly, conversion changes you. Conversion or salvation involves a complete Change. It, first of all, it happens because we are broken. It happens by a breaking in. Later on, Saul tells us that in this, in this conversion experience that Jesus said to him, why do you kick against the goads? What a goad was, it was these pricks that as you were uh, making a, a bull or an ox do, do what you wanted him to do, you would, have these, uh, you would have in the stall these pricks, these spikes that would cause him to walk in a particular direction. And sometimes if you get a particularly like headstrong bull or ox, he would try to kick against the goads, against the pricks to push them back, to get them away from him because it hurts. It's uncomfortable and he wants to be free of it, right? But the more he kicks, the more he realizes this is going to hurt me because the more he kicks, the more it hurts. And for many of you, like conversion is kind of like that. There have been goads that have been pushing you along or pushed you along into this moment. It involves a breaking, just as you would break that ox or break that bull or break a horse. It involves a breaking, not a breaking of our will, but a breaking of our hard-hearted sinfulness against God. It involves a complete change. A repentance has the picture of being a 180. It's turning from one way towards the other. It's something that God grants us. It's a change. This change is always preceded by a process. It's a process. As you look back, you can see how God was working and bringing us to bringing you to the point. Just as he had been bringing Saul to that point. That's why he says, why have you, why have you been kicking against the goad? Saul had been kicking. He had been hearing the story of Jesus. He had been kicking against it. Why are you kicking against it? But it it's a process that brings you, but it happens in an instant where you're converted, you're changed. This change begins with a change in lordship. We see that in Saul. He leaves Jerusalem proud. He's like a beast. Then he's led by the hand into Damascus. It produces a new reverence for God. It begins in the very moment where Jesus speaks to him, where he says, who are you, Lord? He acknowledges him as Lord. And when you are converted as, as a new 
change that happens in your heart where you realize he is God, he is Lord, and I am not. And I will gladly, humbly bow my knee to him. It changes our, brings a change of lordship and it revolutionizes our sense of purpose. God said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Saul was running along with his own sense of purpose, with his own plan for his life. And God arrested him and changed his heart. He converted him. He saw his sinfulness and God's holiness. He submitted to his lordship and he told him, this is going to bring about a change in the purpose for your life. And Saul gladly and humbly submitted to that. Lastly, we don't have time to go into this, but it brings a total change of our identity. Saul became known as Paul after this. God had so changed him. And it's that kind of change God has done in you and me if we're believers. And it's that kind of change he wants to do in you this morning if you're not. So what do we do? First of all, what does this mean for the non-Christian? For the non-Christian, if you're considering the claims of Jesus this morning, it means that to be a Christian does not mean to keep certain rules and not keep certain others. It means means to be converted. It means a submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ that can only happen as you are born again or converted from above. What does this mean for someone who thinks they're okay? Maybe you grew up in church, or you've been around church a long time, or you're just a good person. You might very well be. You might very well be, in many ways, a better person than me. It's not really hard to do. But you think you're okay. The question to ask is, have you been, not whether you think you're a good person or not, but have you been converted? Have you experienced the new birth that we've been describing? And if not, would you pray this morning that God would do that to your heart? And let's let this morning be the kind of morning, that, the kind of day that it was for Saul. What does this mean if you're a struggling Christian here today? You're like, man, I've... <laughs> I know I'm a Christian. I'm pretty sure I am. There might be times I doubt it, but man, I'm really struggling. I feel like God is a million miles away from me. I am bound by this sin and I don't know how to get out. My life is a wreck. I feel lost. I feel abandoned. Remember this morning, Jesus came after you personally, and he will not leave you. Jesus came after you like the hound of heaven, and he will not leave you alone.
he who began that work would complete it and will complete it. If you're a struggling Christian, know that we have an assurance that we can cross the finish line, not by our own power, by our own ability to keep things together, but by the power of the one who came after us. The way we grow, the way we're kept as a Christian is the same way that we're saved by trusting his work on our behalf. And when we remember that as believers, it stirs our affections for him. What do you do if you're this morning a believer with a family member or a friend? And I hope we all have friends that, Neighbors who don't believe. I don't, not that I hope they don't believe. I hope that we're around people who don't believe. Well, it should change the way that we approach them. It's not up to you to articulate the gospel in a beautiful, powerful way that causes them to become a Christian. You just pray for them and offer the gospel to them and pray that God would arrest their hearts the way he did Saul. Jesus is the star of Saul's conversion. And he's the star of yours and mine. We're going to worship together. And I pray that we would worship him. Our hearts would be stirred afresh and anew by that this morning. And if you're not a believer, I pray this would be the morning that that would happen for you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.